All right, Ephesians chapter 5 tonight. You may recall we started chapter 5 last time, and we're just going to do a short recap, and we'll pick up where we left off. So Ephesians chapter 5, let's begin by reading verses 1 through 6. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for an, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness, or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. So remember that chapter 5 is continuing the thought from chapter 4, the latter part there where we were looking at the contrast between the old man and the new man and how the old man's corrupt, the new man is righteous. And that contrast is really continuing here in chapter 5. And we know it continues because verse 1 says, But uh, be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. Why? Because um, if you look at the end of chapter 4, if you just kind of let your eyes fall there to verse 32, And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. So why are we to follow God? Because God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. And so we're to do likewise. Um, To be a follower, remember here, it means to mimic. It means to imitate. We are to be imitators of God, um, not just following God in the sense that uh, we go to church, but that we are mimicking, we are imitating what God is. And so... Uh, we have to be able to forgive others by doing that. If, if we were to practice chapter 4, verse 32, chapter 5, verse 1, our churches would be overflowing. I know this because there's a bunch here that, that are not here tonight that should be. And there's a bunch not here because they've been hurt. But if we would practice this, Maybe we would see some folks get their hearts right. It seems most people who were once in church now have an indictment against somebody who is still in the church. Let me try to explain that. So a lot of times somebody will get hurt and they'll leave church. And their reason is still because the person that hurt them is in that church. Does that make sense what I'm trying to say? And so um, if we would just practice this, uh, we, we might see less of that. And, and that's the reason that usually a lot of people give. As you witness to people, as you try to reach them, it seems like a lot of people will say something like this. Well, I grew up in church, but then so-and-so happened, and now I don't go. And so now every church is guilty, right? Every church must be like that. And so uh, that's the mindset that a lot of people have. But if churches could just get back to those um, uh, who have left and and try to get this thing right through forgiveness, um, there's no telling what could happen. And uh, and so a lot of people have been burned. A lot of people have been wronged. 
And uh, a lot of people have been blessed out. That's the polite way to put it, amen? But man, if we could just practice this, we just might see revival. Because I would ask you seriously, how many of you have heard by someone who used to go to church that they dropped out altogether because someone hurt them? I think we all could probably think of a situation like that. And the problem is nobody ever sought for reconciliation. It's just a situation that got buried. And, and one of the things that I fault independent Baptists for is it seems like we just want to sweep things under the rug and act like nothing's ever happened. And so we, we've got to get this matter right here on what Paul's talking about. Um, we've got to be asking for forgiveness and then be willing to extend forgiveness. And, uh, and, and listen, I believe many times we come down too hard on those who do leave. <laughs> when in reality, the problem is still in the pews. Or God forbid, in the pulpit. Amen. And, and sometimes we get, you know, I, I, and it may sound like I'm railing on those who, who are no longer with us. When in reality, some of them have some, some legitimate reasons and, and the problem is still in the church. So we've got to get this issue straight. And uh, I wonder what might have resulted if the one who had wronged someone went to them, was kind and tender-hearted, and they asked for forgiveness. I wonder what would happen. Uh, I think the one offended would be forgiving. That's been the case in my life. Everybody responds differently, but for the most part, that's been the case that people usually are very forgiving when you ask for forgiveness. And, and I don't want to re-preach this point, and I know that's what it sounds like I'm doing in just our recap here, but I just recently had this happen, and so it's fresh in my mind, and it's near and dear to my heart. And uh, I, I had inadvertently hurt someone, but we sat down together, and we talked it out. Imagine trying that. I admitted my transgression... And the other party was more than willing to forgive me. Because I think most people are willing to be forgiving. We just have to be, is humble the right way? We just got to be humble enough to ask or admit that we've wronged somebody. And so we've got to be willing to do that. Um, now, why were we able to have reconciliation in this situation? Well, because I was aware of the transgression. I was willing to admit the transgression, ask for forgiveness, and, and then in turn, the one that I had hurt was able to mimic God, following God by saying, I forgive you because God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven me. And so if we just practice these things, we, we won't see people hurt and leave the church over it. And, and sometimes we, we, we see that because we just get too prideful. Um, as I said last time, it's a very simple principle, but it's, we make it complicated. In our pride, we make it complicated. And so um, let's just humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. Amen. How do we practice this principle? We saw last time the answer there in verse 2. Walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. We are to forgive as God forgives, but listen, we are to love 
as Christ loves. And we saw last time that's a sacrificial love. That's what, the, that's what verse 2 says. Because Christ has given himself for us. He sacrificed himself for us. And that's how we're to love others. And, and ultimately, that becomes a sweet-smelling savor to God. And, and we all should be sweet-smelling savers. Amen? <laughs> Sorry, I got a picture of like foot washing or gym or something. But we're all supposed to be a sweet-smelling saver. And, uh, and so the application for us is if we'll practice this, if we'll follow God as dear children, if we'll imitate Him, if we'll love as Christ loves, then we too can be a sweet-smelling savor unto God as a church. Amen. Now, for tonight, look again at verses 3 and 4. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become as saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. And I'm always amazed that there are churches who have just completely watered down the Word of God in an effort to not come across as dogmatic about sin. Because the, the idea is, if we get up and preach what's right and wrong, black and white, then the people out there are going to be offended and they're going to go somewhere else. But you know, I found that to be the opposite case most of the time. That a lot of people are just genuinely seeking for truth. And so when they come in here, there's this thing going on today called the seeker-sensitive movement. And the idea is that we become sensitive to those who are seeking for Christ and we don't want to offend them. But the problem with that is this. They come in the door with some kind of a sin, some kind of baggage, and instead of giving them the answers that they are actually after, we hide those things because we think if they'll just be in here, then that's better than nothing. And we've got to be careful about that. And so Paul here, he's not mincing words. And, and churches that have managed to dodge the issue of sin, they have either completely forsaken the Word of God, or they just choose not to preach through the Word of God. And then you just get the preacher that gets up, and I'm going to give you what God's given me this week. This is why I like going through the Word of God. Because it makes me address things that otherwise I may not really want to address. I don't like addressing these kinds of lists. But it's in the Word of God. And so we have to cover these things. And so anyway, uh, it just amazes me how many have watered down God's message. And, and you, know, you know my heart. I don't believe a, a preacher, anybody in the pulpit, ought to come across as crass, uh, purposefully offensive, browbeating, or anything like that uh, when they deliver their message. But we still need to shoot it straight. We still need preachers that will just say what the Word of God says. And, and the Apostle Paul here, he's very stern about these sins. And he's going to leave no doubt as to how God feels about it. Really what's going on here is it's continuing the contrast between the old man and the new man uh, that we've been considering through the end of chapter 4. Um, the new man is going to mimic God's forgiveness and will love as Christ loves, but the old man is corrupt. As followers of God, as dear children, we're being told here that fornication, uncleanness, covetousness shouldn't even be named among us as becometh saints. 
And then we're told that filthiness, foolish talking, and jesting are not convenient. I think we know what these mean, but let me give you quickly the definition of these. The first is fornication. What's interesting about the Apostle Paul in these lists that he gives in these different epistles is almost always when he gives a list of these sins, the first one is fornication. And it was a problem back then, and it's a problem today, right? And so the first one listed, fornication, if we were just to define that very strictly, it would just simply be uh, sex outside of marriage. And so um, that's what fornication, if we just wanted to define it simply. But I, I think we could actually say it, it covers all the sexual sins. Everybody with me or did we just get, okay. And so um, not just sex outside of marriage, but all sexual immorality. And, and God calls it sin. And, and next we read of all uncleanness. This is any moral impurity. So if you're one that's justifying sin in your life, uh, this covers all defiling lust. You can't, you can't hide it based off of this passage because Paul kind of gets it all when he says all uncleanness. All of that moral impurity, God hates. Amen. Then we read of covetousness or greediness. And I would ask the question, why is there fornication? Why is there uncleanness? Because of covetousness. It's because we've coveted after something that's not ours. And, and we wanted it because we were greedy. We were being covetous. Um, we fornicate because we want that other person. And we are unclean because we desire something impure, and we covet after it. We go after it. Uh, this would also include uh, covetousness here, being greedy of all financial gain, whether it be through um, something that's fraudulent or through, uh, like, blackmail, extortion, all of that is covetousness. Um, these are such serious offenses in God's eyes that we are told these should not be once named among us. Why? Because we are saints. Because we're God's children. These sins are not becoming of a Christian. They're not suitable of a Christian. And when we commit these things, we are not being followers of God. We're not mimicking God when we commit sin. We're going to see more on this as we get through chapter 5. But we're to live in such a way that these things shouldn't even be rightly named among us. That's a pretty high standard. Well, that's the standard that God has set. Amen. And I realize we live in a day when all it takes is, sometimes all it takes is an accusation. 
Isn't that right? If you keep up with politics, you know this is true. This is what the liberals do. That's their playbook. See also Judge Kavanaugh, President Trump. All it takes is the accusation. And then now in America, we're living in a day where you are now guilty until proven innocent. Instead of innocent until proven guilty. And so I know sometimes we just can't get away from some of this because of the day in which we live. But I believe this is all the more reason that we need to live as clean a life as we possibly can. Because people are looking, they're, they're watching, they're waiting to make the accusation. They're after you. And, and, and they want to know. It's, it, look, not everybody. I mean, but you know how it is. People know that you're a Christian, and all of a sudden you live in a glass house, and man, they're watching you. They see everything. They're waiting to see if you'll trip up. They're waiting to see if this thing's real. Some of them are just genuinely seeking. But then you have those who are just waiting to sink their teeth into you. And we have to live clean lives as a result. And and like I said, this is all the more reason to live as God commands. This is why later on in this chapter we'll see that we are to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. We're not even to fellowship. This is why we're going to see that we need to walk circumspectly. This is why we're going to read that we have to redeem the time. Because we don't even want these things named among us. And, and, and this is why we have to be careful. This is why we don't go to that establishment. Because we don't even want the accusation. This is why I don't go and have a cup of coffee with another woman. I don't even want the accusation. And so we just got to be careful of what kind of position we put ourselves in. Um, And so we don't even want the accusation. This means that we don't hang out with certain people. I'm not saying we don't try to win people. I'm not saying that we uh, turn noses up and all that kind of stuff. But you understand what I'm saying. There's some people over here in this group doing things that we don't need to be associated with. Because when, when things come to light, when the law gets involved or something serious goes down, man, don't be guilty by association. Just make sure you stay away from that stuff. Next in verse 4, we read that we also aren't to have any filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting. Uh, Verse 3 is sins of the body, and verse 4 are sins with the mouth, if I can kind of put it that way. Now, filthiness can really apply either way, but um, it's the first one listed. Those who name the name of Christ are not to be foul-mouthed. We're not to use obscenities. Amen. We're We're not to go around cussing to try to make ourselves sound like it's a better story. We, we, we have to clean our mouth up. No filthiness. Um, and so we, we, we aren't to tell filthy jokes or use crude humor. And, and honestly, we should avoid being in conversations when that's taking place as best as we can. Listen, I was in the military for 21 years. I get it. But we need to back away from those things at every possible opportunity that we can. And so that's filthiness. 
Next is foolish talking. Um, the best I could define this is it's just stupid nonsense. Just nonsense. It's ridiculous talk. It's things that are absurd. Paul wrote to Timothy, but foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. The last one mentioned in verse 4 is jesting. In the strictest sense, this is an odd word because it's the only place that this word is used uh, in our New Testament as far as the Greek is concerned. And uh, it, it, it means this, when we turn things around, and, and what I mean by that is, it's when we make something mean something that it doesn't. Uh, when we turn words around, when we make words have a double meaning, innuendos, uh, ambiguities, insinuations, uh, inferences. It, it's a figure of speech or a particular way of wording that is meant to be understood two different ways to have that double meaning. Typically, one of the meanings is obvious given the context on where the conversation is going, whereas the other one might require a little bit more thought. And it conveys a message. Listen, this kind of sums it up well. It conveys a message that would be socially awkward, sexually suggestive, or offensive if we were to state those things directly. And so we use innuendos. We turn words around. We, we, we make these jokes to where um, it can mean two, three different things. I wanted to try to give you an example, but then I decided that wouldn't be prudent. So I trust I've detailed it enough that you understand what jesting means here. And, and I'm not sure if this includes just general joking around, but just in case, let me cover this thought anyway, because I really don't want to. If there's one passage I never wanted to get to on Ephesians, it was this passage, because I like to joke around. And, and honestly, I'm guilty of joking around too much. And uh, it's something I've even had to learn in our marriage. I mean, there's some things where Adrian's trying to be serious, and I'm just... <laughs> and so we've just got to make sure sometimes we... Anyway, uh, not to justify my sin, but I grew up in a home where, man, you joked about everything. And if you saw a weakness, you exploited it through just needling. You know what I'm talking about? Like nobody ever lived down anything. Um, anyway, that's, that's how I kind of came up, but, uh, it's kind of also how I learned to deal with issues and, uh, just try to joke around and that's not always the best thing. And, and then my career choice as a meteorologist, for those who don't know, meteorologists are like the scourge of society because to the public, they're always wrong. <laughs> Quit shaking your head, sis. And so, uh, they're always wrong. And, uh, I remember in North Dakota, we forecasted 10 inches of snow, and the base got two inches, and everybody just wouldn't let you live it down. Although five miles north in the town of Burns, I think it is, they had 10 inches of snow. And I wanted to take everybody's face out there and just rub it in that snow. <laughs> but I can't do that. And so anyway, I just learned to laugh at things, not take myself too seriously. Um, but I want you to know, I say some really dumb things. And I'm really sorry, I, and, and I mean it. I, I'm really going to work harder at it. Um, ben, I feel like I owe you an apology. Last week at choir practice, Kenny said something about a new member, and I said, who joined? And Ben was standing there, and he said, Ben. And I said, Ben can't sing. Uh, 
That's just a stupid thing to say. It's not convenient is what the Bible is telling us. And so, um, anyway, if, if I've offended you at, at an attempted use of humor, I'm sorry. Um, like I said, I am making an effort to improve. Don't look at me like that. You're, you're going to make me laugh, and I'm trying to be serious. Um, and I have to remember what I tell my kids all the time. You know what I'm going to say? There's a time and a place. I'm, I'm guessing most of the time it's not from the pulpit, and that's a shame. <laughs> so I got to asking myself, how do I know if it's right or wrong? Um, well, if it's not convenient, if it's not a suitable time, if it's not expedient to do so. But here's a good rule of thumb I've, I've learned over the years. Uh, when in doubt, don't. So, <laughs> look, if you come to men and boys camp out, all bets are off. Amen. We're... We should avoid filthiness, foolish talking, and jesting because they are not convenient. They are not becoming of saints. Um, I'd, I'd put it to you this way. We're not to use obscenities. We should avoid foolish talking. And we shouldn't use socially awkward, sexually suggestive, or offensive talk because it's not fitting for us to do so. James 3.2 says it pretty good. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. And so our tongue is an unruly member, the Bible says. Instead of these kinds of sinful talking, we are told at the end of verse 4, but rather giving of thanks. We should be praising one another. Ben, I think you sing terrific, brother. I'm so glad you joined the choir. Uh, I, I think I've been around Ben enough to know he, 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 know, he knows I was just kidding. But maybe others didn't know. Why am I in the choir then? And so anyway... Um, we should speak favorably one to another. I think we covered that pretty in depth in Ephesians 4, verse 29, so I don't really want to stay here long, where we talked about we should be building people up with our words, not tearing them down. Now, with those definitions out of the way, I want to give you the heart of the message here tonight real quick. Verse 3 begins with the conjunction, but. And, and that ties it back to the previous thought, which was the love of Christ mentioned in verse 2. And I think we all understand tonight that as believers, we ought to be different from the world. Look, it's not good to be a quote-unquote Christian fornicator. It's an oxymoron. It doesn't even go together. And we ought to be different. We ought to live differently. We ought to truly try to be Christians, Christ-like. But what's going to help us live differently? What's going to help us avoid these sins listed in verses 3 and 4? What is going to help us to come apart from the world, to be separate from the world? What is going to help us to live that separated life, to leave these sinful behaviors, leave these sinful conversations? In our context, it's the love of Christ. 
2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul writes, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all. Now listen, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. And so it was the love of Christ that constrained Paul to live the way he did. It it pressed him to Christ. It it crowded him to Christ. The, The love of Christ arrested him. And Paul understood who he was before Christ. That's important in all of this. He understood he was a murderer. He understood that he was the chief of sinners. He understood all those things, and yet he had to try to comprehend the fact that Jesus Christ would lay down his life for the Apostle Paul. And understanding that, Paul says, the love of Christ constraineth me. Paul wrote in Philippians 1.21, for me to... For me to live is Christ. That was the purpose of his life. There's a beautiful account in Luke chapter 7. While Christ was in Galilee, a Pharisee named Simon asked if Jesus would come to his house and have supper with him. And our Lord agrees And while there, a woman of the city, which was a sinner, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and she wept at Jesus' feet, and she began to wash the Lord's feet with her hair. And then she anoints His feet with ointment. Simon, the Pharisee, who had invited Jesus in, He begins to think within himself, if this man knew what kind of woman she was, that she was a sinner, he wouldn't allow her to touch him. Jesus, knowing all of those thoughts that Simon was having, he turns and he looks at the woman, but he's addressing Simon, and he says, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he said, Master, say on. And then Jesus gave this parable in Luke chapter 7, verses 41 through 43. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave us most. And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. This woman loved Jesus so much because she recognized what Simon knew, and that is that she was a sinner. Simon's problem as a Pharisee was that he trusted in his own self-righteousness. And because of that, he didn't see his great need of forgiveness. He didn't see the need of a deliverer. 
And what compelled this woman to love Jesus so much, it was her understanding of what she was without Him. That she was nothing without Christ. In in other words, the love of Christ constrained her to do what she did. It was the preoccupation of her mind. And, And here's the emphasis I want you to get tonight. I think the problem that some have today, and maybe even many, is that they don't understand who they are without Christ. They're in the camp who loves little. Because they don't see themselves as having to be forgiving of a great debt. They don't see themselves in the company of those uh, who needed to be forgiven so much. They don't comprehend the love it took for Christ to take their place. Listen now, therefore they're still caught up in the sins of verses 3 and 4. Fornication doesn't mean a thing. Because they have not yet understood the love of Christ. It has yet to constrain them. They don't comprehend how wicked they were, and maybe how wicked they're acting, or maybe how wicked they can be without Christ in their life. And, and sometimes people don't understand that they were truly born at enmity against God. That they deserved the wrath of God because they were born sinners. And I want to tell you tonight, there was nothing lovable about us. God didn't, this is why I hate Calvinism. Because God doesn't look down and say, well, I love them, but they're condemned to hell. And man, let me get on a soapbox. There's a movement today in independent Baptist churches going to this Reformation nonsense. Reformed Baptist churches that used to be independent Baptist churches because they're too lazy to go knock a door say that it's because God has chosen some for eternal life and He's chosen some for damnation. What a shame. They don't understand the love of Christ. But some are out there and they believe that they weren't necessarily that bad. And some, man, some have the idea that somehow they're owed the love of God. Well, God owes me His love because God is love. Well, I got news for you. God is love, but He's also wrath. God didn't owe us a thing. But He chose to love us. And to die for us in spite of us. And I'm just curious tonight. Have you been constrained by the love of Christ? One of the easiest ways for you to know is whether or not you've stopped these sins. Whether or not you're serving Him with your life. To serve God with your life doesn't mean you have to stand in a pulpit somewhere. It doesn't even mean that you have to teach a class. But it means your life belongs to God for Him to do with you as He sees fit. And do you love Him that much tonight? In John chapter 21, we should get there on Sunday mornings in about five more years. 
<laughs> the Lord has resurrected the disciples go fishing. And Jesus shows up on the shore and he tells the disciples, they don't know who he is yet, and he tells the disciples, why don't you drop your net on the other side? And they bring in a multitude of fishes. And then they realize it's the Lord, and Jesus tells them, come and dine. And after they had eaten, Jesus says to Simon Peter three times, lovest thou me? And, and every time, Peter said, yea, Lord, thou knowest I love, I, I love you. And Jesus told him three times, feed my sheep. He said once, feed my lambs, and twice he said, feed my sheep. And I want you to get that before the apostle Peter was used in such a mighty way, Jesus had to address the issue of whether or not he loved him. And once, once Peter said, Lord, you know, I love, and it bothered Peter by the third time. And he said, you, you know I love you. And Jesus said then, he didn't put in the, but now serve me. Feed my sheep. And, and you know whether or not you've been constrained by the love of Christ, whether or not you're serving him. And, and Peter, who, who had betrayed the Lord three times, or excuse me, denied the Lord three times the night of our Lord's betrayal, understanding that Christ would still forgive him, would still love him, that's what motivated him to serve our Lord. And, and it was Peter's love for Christ that would cause him to serve Jesus the rest of his life, and eventually at the end of his life he would be a martyr. Do you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Do you know the Lord that way? I'm not, I'm not asking if you're saved. But does the love of Christ constrain you enough to come apart? To live holy? Does your love for Him and what He's done for you drive you to serve Him with all your life? Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight because you first loved us. But I'm afraid that for most of us, our love has to go much deeper. That we don't fully understand who we were without you, who we could be without you, who we are without you. And therefore, we still live a life that's displeasing to you that does encompass these sins that we talked about tonight and much more. And Lord, some of us, I believe, are making the effort, and yet we're just not at that point yet to serve you with our life. And it's because we don't yet reciprocate the love that you gave to us. And so, Father, my prayer tonight is very simply this, that we would all understand our great need of you, and may that drive us, motivate us, constrain us to serve you all the days of our life. That you might get all the honor, praise, and glory. Because Christ is worthy. We love you. And Lord, I pray these things in the power and the authority of Christ's name. Amen.